Welcome to Two Christians and a Jew, where two Christians and a Jew start digging into Hebrew scriptures, and we're going to see how we interpret them differently and what we can learn from one another so that we can walk with God more closely. Uh, I'm Frank Taylor. I'm Jennifer Brown Jones. I'm Mirosimcha, your resident Jew, and it is my pleasure and privilege to introduce the one, the only, Tracy Rhodes. <laughs> We're very excited to welcome as our first guest on Two Christians and a Jew, the open-hearted, wandering but not lost, loving soul woman, Tracy. Tracy has a new book, Not All Who Wander Are Lost, a fascinating blog in a Twitter feed that is actually uplifting. <laughs> so yeah. if you were looking for something uplifting online, look no further, check out Tracy. Um, in fact, it was on that uplifting Twitter feed that I first articulated the idea for this podcast in public. And so she's a kind of, I'm not sure what the right metaphor is here, maybe like a bridesmaid for this podcast. <laughs> I, like that. I like it. Um, if you want to see that thread, I will link that in the description. So thank well, you so much, Tracy. Yeah, thank you for having me. I, uh, I was able to listen to your first podcast and enjoyed it very much. So I'm looking forward to today and all I can learn. Yeah. Um, and Tracy, I do want to add that uh, I've been reading your book. I started reading your book uh, yesterday because I'm the kind of guy that likes to cram <laughs> right before the test. Um, but I'm about halfway through. I have really, really enjoyed it. And it's not all who wander are spiritually, in parentheses, law. Um, it, it's really nice to see someone like exploring the many different sides of the Christian faith, um, just kind of openly and honestly about you know, what the experiences are like, what it's like going to different churches and kind of how they're different and how they're the same and kind of how uh, you're still talking about the same God. You know? Yeah regardless yeah. of the church. And that's something that I've, uh, I've seldom read a book um, about churches that has been kind of nice and uplifting and satisfying to read. And so I'm really enjoying it. And I hope there's not like a plot twist at the end or anything. But <laughs> No, church, church still stays pretty good. Um, I felt like the various, I love to read about church myself. And I felt like the various books that I was reading had some kind of um, deconstruction or some kind of extremely negative part yeah. to the story. And as I considered my own story, I, I didn't have necessarily very negative parts to my story, but I felt like the more I learned about church and the more I learned about um, Christianity and then um, also segueing into this podcast, Judaism, I felt like it was very incomplete. Um, what I was offered was a very, very small piece of the pie, and I wanted more and more. Um, and actually reference that again and again. The, the way I have found to experience more of God is to learn from other um, individuals. And yes, I welcome that for sure. Yeah, it's been great. So, but. Amir, I guess y'all had talked, uh, you and Tracy anyway, had talked about some different topics. How did that all evolve? That's right. Tracy and I were chatting about what we'd discuss in this episode, and I was rattling off very specific things like, you know, things that Everybody who reads the Bible knows about Shemini Atzeret, for example. <laughs> Obviously. Um, that's a I have no idea how that's translated in English. It's a um, in your uh, ice cappuccino. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. For sure. For that's sure. Yeah. There was a lot of that in the desert, you should know. Um, Makes sense. 
<laughs> yeah, or maybe uh, the the sukkah of Jonah. I'm actually Tracy. If you want to see, I am sitting in my sukkah yes. because today is the fifth day of Sukkot. See the schach up there, and um, so there's a, a sukkah that we read about at the end of Yom Kippur, just five days before Sukkot starts. I think maybe that would be good, or maybe the water cycle in the creation narrative, something like that, or or maybe what it means for Jews that we're about to complete our annual cycle of reading the written Torah. And Tracy pulled back the reins on me and was like, <laughs> yes, that. I was like, what? <laughs> and she Torah. said, the written Torah. <laughs> you should give your listeners a broad look. I'm like, okay. Broad look, got it. Well, when we talk about Torah, so often I think Christians have a certain conception of it because often Torah is translated in our English Bibles, at least, as law. And we have all these connotations about law and bad things. And I think sometimes we don't even get a holistic reading, say, of Paul's take on law. And we can kind of dig into that at some other point if it makes sense. But being the Old Testament Bible teacher, Bible nerd, uh, I can't help but think of a prayer that I read early on during my coursework. And I wanted to read a little bit of it to you because it kind of sets the stage for what the ancient world, the perspective was of the God. There wasn't a distinction between sacred and secular. And we mentioned that a little bit uh, in our last That's episode, right. Mayor. Yeah. But this was very much in the ancient world. So if something went wrong in your life, something was wrong with the gods. And I'm saying gods because I'm speaking broadly of the culture around Israel, of which, you know, Israel to some extent is a part. Um, but I wanted to share and read a little bit of that prayer to you and then highlight just a couple of things. So I'm not going to read the whole thing. Don't worry. But may the fury of my Lord's heart be quieted towards me. May the God who is not known be quieted toward me. May the goddess who is not known be quieted toward me. May the God whom I know or do not know be quieted toward me. May the goddess whom I know or do not know be quieted toward me. May the God who has become angry with me be quieted toward me. May the goddess who has become angry with me be quieted toward me. In ignorance, I have eaten that forbidden of my God. In ignorance, I have set foot on that prohibited by my goddess. O Lord, my transgressions are many, greater my sins. O God, my transgressions are many, greater my sins. The transgression that I have committed, indeed, I do not know. The sin that I have done, indeed, I do not know. The forbidden thing that I have eaten, indeed, I do not know. The prohibited place on which I have set foot, indeed, I do not know. The Lord in the anger of his heart looked at me. The God in the rage of his heart confronted me. When the goddess was angry, with she made me become ill. The God whom I know or do not know has oppressed me. The goddess whom I know or do not know has placed suffering upon me. Although I am constantly looking for help, no one takes me by the hand. When I weep, they do not come to my side. I utter lament, but no one hears. I am troubled. I am overwhelmed. I cannot see. Oh my God, merciful one, I address to you the prayer ever inclined to me. I kiss the feet of my goddess. I crawl before you. Oh my God, transgressions are seven times seven. Remove my transgressions. Oh my goddess, transgressions are seven times seven. Remove my transgressions. Remove my transgressions and I will sing your praise. May your heart like the heart of a real mother be quieted toward me. Like a real mother and a real father may it be quieted toward me. That's the world. They don't know who the God is. They don't know who they've offended. They don't know what they've done and they have no clue how to make it right. And into this world, God speaks and gives Torah and says, this is who I am. This is what I expect. 
and this is how to live and make things right. All of a sudden we see that even Torah would have been seen as grace. Maybe a little bit different than Christians are used to. And I would love your take on this, Mare, and how you interpret Torah, but it's into this context that Torah breaks in as something totally different and something totally new. Yeah, yeah. I want to say I love where you took that because I'm mm -hmm. listening to this going, okay, I mean, this sounds like a very religious prayer, but um, this person is completely fixated on themselves. Mm. This is it's a completely solipsistic, like self-obsessed, begging prayer. And, you know, I don't want to invalidate anybody's emotional experience, um, except that this is a person who's disconnected from reality because they're, you know, just completely absorbed with this religious idea of like, okay, I have these transgressions and I need, I need my atonement. I need to get things better. I need this, that, yeah. you know, and you're right. Torah is uh, an amazing contrast to that because we're being invited into, we're making uh, a covenant, a relationship, a, a marriage between heaven and earth, which is about going, well, maybe it's a mistake to say it's about going beyond those kinds of self-obsessed petty things, unless you get beyond those very infantile religious conceptions, then there's no chance of anything. Well, and in the in this context, in this world, I've heard it described as the great symbiosis. The gods expected, at least in this ancient conception, the gods expected to be taken care of, and in return, they took care of you. And so it was very fundamentally about survival and about self. And I love that you highlighted that, because I think we see something very different in Torah. What, what Jen's saying, do you, um, is that how you see the ancient world? An extremely, um, you know, I, I immediately went to the Cain-Abel um, conflict. Do you see um, the world as a selfish place and in comes God, um, cap capital G, and he says, I'm going to offer you a way that is community. I'm going to offer you a way that is um, more than about survival, but um, be being together, being together with me, being together with one another. Is that, mm. is that an accurate I, because I, I like the way she refers to that, that this, this world is in existence and, and the, the creator comes in and says, now let, let's bring order, let's bring um, community. I come back to the word community again. So I'd, I'd flip that around pretty radically um, mm -hmm. because the, the creator is always here and right. the, the opportunity is always there. The question is, is, uh, is anybody on our planet going to pick up the phone <laughs> and say hello, you know, ET, phone home. Like, we think that people are on a spiritual search to find God, which is also true. God, what are these dogs doing in the background? Sorry, friends, um, I'm in my sukkah. Everything's happening around me. So it's true, you know, man can go on a spiritual journey, but the more fundamental thing to think about in terms of like, what is creation is God is in search of an other to relate to. God in Search of Man. Beautiful book. Recommend it highly. It's interesting you refer to Cain and Hevel, to Cain and Abel, because I think my tendency, and this is this is fairly common in uh, the traditional Jewish world, is to look at um, everybody in the Torah, all the characters, as doing maximally profound things. Hmm. So even when you're looking at a guy who seems to be very pity and villainous, like uh, p petty and villainous, like kind, like uh, Cain, um, we're going to 
try to see him in the deepest possible light in order to understand how profound and subtle evil can actually be. Um, and so when I think of the ancient world and I think of the, the background that Torah is coming into, that covenant is erupting into, then I think of actually a section of Mishneh Torah, which is uh, the, the big legal code, um, kind of demeaning to call it that, but just for the sake of introducing it, it's not a bad way to introduce it, uh, of uh, Maimonides, or as we say, usually Rambam. And at the very, he gives, it's funny to say this, he has a whole section on the laws of uh, foreign worship, of idolatry. And he starts it off with a kind of um, imaginal anthropology of how things must have developed or anti-developed across the generations. So you start with Adam uh, and, and Chava, uh, Eve, Adam and Eve, who have an intimate relationship. So how, oft, how on earth do you get from that into a world filled with idolatry? And he traces the stages of this and the, the disruptor in that ecosystem is Abraham, Abraham, who instead of like this person in the prayer that you read, Jen, uh, instead of obsessing about um, what he needs to get or what she needs to get, uh, asks, well, where am I? What is this? What is this place? What is creation? What is existence? And those questions that aren't just about, um, aren't merely uh, driven by need um, and aren't merely driven by uh, even the moral impulse, they're existential questions. They're about like, what are things? Let's stop talking about good and bad and let's talk about, let's talk about truth and false. Let's talk about is, isn't. Um, truth and false are kind of loaded terms today. So <laughs> let's talk about what is and what isn't. What's illusion? What's, right? So, so that's where Abraham comes from. And, and once you have somebody who's, who's going to make that phone call home, um, then, then covenant becomes possible. I, I would say that's, that's the context, the way that I'm looking at it. So then this prayer is situated within that development of idolatry, which has not only um, led them to a place where they don't know what they're worshiping, but where they're, even their focus has become mal-focused. I don't know. Has be It's focusing yeah. on the wrong things. It's not focusing on ultimate things. It's focused on self rather than the reality of what God has created. And yeah, so I don't. I don't want to come out against self and be like, okay, we all need to sit in meditation and go to ashram and get rid of ourselves. <laughs> no, I didn't take but, it that way. But no, there but is like something that's self, bigger than self. Yeah, I think. I think we. It's ourselves are interfaces, right? You're you're a slice of space time. And and there's no real separation between you and the rest of existence in any ultimate sense. There's just being. But we have these selves in order to an, enable a relationship between created and creator. So I, I kind of want to key off of that a little bit because I have a question for Tracy because we've, um, we've kind of like explored this existential crisis of humanity and, you know, relationship between created and creator and how that comes back. And Tracy, you... You've explored a lot of different churches um, just in the experience, you know, from a lot of different angles. And you started to pick up this interest in Judaism. Um, 
at least asking more questions. And I'm curious, was it the covenant side of this that was what was interesting? Was it this, um, you know, this focus on ultimate things that we've kind of talked about that it seems to get illustrated here? Um, was it the community? Uh, what what sparked and what sparked asking questions about Judaism in this way? Yeah, it's a good it's a good question. Um, I have taught Bible study at my local church off and on over the years, but very regularly for about ten years now. And you know, I I use your standard. Um, I I attend a um, Reformed church, and I use the standard evangelical Bible study. Um, if I were to list the authors, you would know them all or at least a big majority of them. Yeah, I'm going to need some background here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm getting there. And, okay. and they have taken me so far, but um, due to social media, due to some reading that I did, um, you know, just on my own, I, I happen to love Jewish fiction, which is really interesting. The Weight of Ink, a book I read just a few years ago. Anyway, I developed an interest in um, Judaism in general. But then the more I read and the more I interacted on social media, I began to realize and am still convinced. Um, I, I think someone said it on Twitter, if I remember correctly, we can't understand our Old Testament without understanding Judaism, and in particular, the ancient Jewish tradition. And all of a sudden, I feel like a really dumb Bible teacher, because because um, we're we're not offered um, yeah. much on that, and so uh, I would say maybe the last year or two, I feel like I've done this mad scramble to um, to fill in the gaps in, in my learning and in my understanding of the Old Testament. Um, it, you know, it, it's going to sound bizarre, and I'm overplaying it a little bit, but th the Old Testament can be read just as the Old Testament. Yeah. And, and that sometimes blows uh. my mind and how, how <laughs> talk about egocentric, talk about self focused. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so Frank, to answer your question, I, um, partly because I'm curious by nature anyway, partly because, um, what I have read in fiction and nonfiction about the Jewish faith intrigues me and partly because I want to study my Bible better. I want to be a a more responsible Bible scholar. As it turns out, there's more to the Old Testament than just learning Hebrew, right? Because <laughs> it's not just learning some Hebrew words and then being able to drop uh, a knowledge bomb on a Bible study with this word could also mean this. Um, <laughs> well, oh, well, well, that one hurts a little. Yeah, but, but by the way, I'm also guilty of that because yeah. that's, that's how I taught Bible studies was because my background is in languages and translation. And I, it would, I'd spend uh, 16 hours studying a passage in Hebrew. And then, oh, guys, let me tell you five things you would only know if you could read Hebrew. Yeah. Someone was interested in that, but I wasn't spending enough time trying to figure out, well, but what did these minor prophets mean to Jews at the time? What did, yeah. what did these things mean to a Jewish audience? And um, sometimes we get the opportunity of being told as Christians, the Bible wasn't written for you. Sometimes a pastor will say, well, the Bible was written to uh, people thousands of years ago, and it, we just so happened to have this very long process of making it relevant to Christians called exegesis. And so sometimes we get to hear that, 
but sometimes there's a lot of churches where they just kind of skip the intermediate steps and just say, well, this is um, picking on Psalm 23 is, you know, a great one. Somehow Psalm 23 is immediately uh, relevant to a Christian without us ever understanding what that had to do with Judaism back then. Or the fact that we live in a very different context that's not agrarian right and that we aren't shepherds and we don't know all so i mean you get all these different pieces this is like one of these mind-blowing things when like what does it mean to you know go up to jerusalem it's not just spiritual elevation it's physical elevation jerusalem is in the mountains Mm -hmm. right Right. like well what's you know to, to understand that even the calendar with where the holidays are placed on the calendar has things to do with the rain cycle and yeah. all sorts of things. So just to, to bring out like how much the context matters, yeah. but I, I, it's, it's fascinating to hear what you're saying about, about how you're seeing the Bible. Well, that whole, that goes back to what you were saying, Frank, the Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us exactly. and trying to bridge that gap. Yeah. It, and so I appreciate you sharing that Tracy, because yeah. Um, I've been trying to figure out how to bridge that gap and I haven't been teaching a Bible study for maybe like five years. I took a break because I felt like, ugh. I like I've had to repent of the way that I used to do it. (laughs) I felt like I didn't, I didn't do it. I didn't give it justice the way that I should have done it. And if I can give a honest real life example, I teach the children at our church. Um, some, there's other teachers as well, but um, kindergarten through fifth grade, I teach Sunday school lessons too. Um, and I don't know if I'm a better teacher or a worse teacher, but boy, has it got complicated <laughs> because I'll talk about um, Jonah and there's so there's so much more how do you how do you present this whole um this whole person that has become holiday worthy uh for a jewish individual to a kindergartner you know and then you have um this is this is just the world that my mind lives in you have some people who say well jonah absolutely did live in a whale for three days that is so literal and then you have people that say oh let's look figuratively at jonah and let's see what deeper meaning you know and and then i stand before kindergartners who are like punching each other and you know asking when we're going to get candy at the end of church (laughs) and try to try to give that story meaning that um that awakens a hunger in them that's always my end goal i want you to want more of the bible even a five-year-old in talking about the idea of teaching our children in Sunday school at church, so many, I remember my own growing up those years that they were the stories of the stories. Adam and Cain and Abel and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Joseph. And it was all these stories and Moses. We definitely talked about Moses and especially, you know, the Exodus from Egypt and all of these things. And that takes us back to Torah because I think sometimes the way we teach them, I can remember it was, you know, you want to be like this person. You don't want to be like that person was often used. But but I think that when we step back and what I'm hearing you say, Tracy, is that you want to come at this and not just give this surface reading, but this brings us back to that bigger question of what is Torah? So Mayor, could you kind of bring some of this around for us? Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) You gave me a (laughs) Give me a lot no there. Pressure, no pressure. No <laughs> pressure. Um, well, on on that crazy stand, note, do it standing uh, on one foot if you could. You know, maybe maybe let me back up and and take some really basic things. 
that that again we're we're raised in discussion between uh, Tracy and me um, online before we we actually got to to this episode. A good first question is what's included in the Torah? Yes, right. I, I think we're we're all on the same page for knowing that you know Genesis through Deuteronomy are all part of the Torah. Now, when just to keep things confusing, uh, very frequently we will name a whole body of work by the first part of that work and we that's thematic of how jews name things we don't just call that torah torah is the general term for everything that has to do with teaching within our tradition it starts with the five books of moses and then you have the prophets i i don't know if there are disagreements well there are Um, so in the English a Bible, yeah. what we call the historical books would would fall into the prophets category. So Samuel, Kings, Judges. So and yeah, the, those books that you just mentioned right now, we include those in prophets too. And then we have uh, the Ketuvim, the writings, which you know, starts with uh, Psalms and Proverbs. And interestingly, um, Daniel, mm-hmm. whom we consider to be part of the prophetic corpus, is in the writings, isn't it? The right. Daniel? Yeah. So yeah, that historical sequence, right? starts in you know it starts with the five books of moses and then goes into prophets but then there are a lot of prophets who aren't really a part of the historical narrative and then you wind up in daniel ezra nehemiah um how do you say nehemiah in english nehemiah what nehemiah nehemiah oh man i like your way better (laughs) okay wow nehemiah do people name anybody nehemiah I've never met one. I'm pretty sure I've known one Nehemiah. Rare, yeah, rare. Rare, okay. So that's an overview of the text in the Torah. But when we talk about the Torah, we will very frequently talk about Torah Shebikhtav, the written Torah, and Torah Shebaalpeh, the oral Torah. Mayor, if if you could back up, um, those three written sections that you just referenced have a name too. Ah, yes, sorry. Okay, we have an acronym. We have an acronym, and the acronym is the Tanakh. The first letter is T for Torah. The next letter is N for Nun, for Nevi'im, prophets. And the last letter there is a Kaf or a Chaf, which is for Ketuvim, writings. Think. Yes. Tanakh. Tanakh. <laughs> we have trouble we, with that. It's not we, part of our... <laughs> yeah, we have many guttural sounds. We have many guttural sounds. There's the Chaf, which is the easy one. Then there's the Het, which is much deeper. You have ayin, which is actually, uh, sorry, you have aleph, which is uh, kind of just a hard glottal mm-hmm. stop. That's, I mean, you, you've got that in English too, um, mm-hmm. even if you don't spell it. And then we have ayin, ayin, <laughs> which uh, I don't know how to characterize it phonetically. It's been a it, long time for me. It's, it's not trying, a. F- it's the sound that you make when an olive is stuck in your throat. <laughs> yes, precisely, precisely. That's that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. We also have a bunch of different K sounds. Then you move on to the. Okay. Yeah. Let's keep going. (laughs) Could totally. We go off on tangents too. I'm happy to nerd out on sounds for a long time. Then we go on to moving on to the oral version. Okay. So so on to the oral Torah. The oral Torah is also from Mount Sinai, from Moshe. Now let me interject because that was um. That was my first fun fact that I learned as I prepared for today. Um, it, the reference is uh, in, th- well, it's clear back when Moses was on Mount Sinai, right? 
um, which I, of course, can't find quickly. It's in there. Deuteronomy? Like uh, it's in ex Exodus 24, 12. Oh, yeah. Um, Exodus. Just kind of as a note for a listener. Because yeah. it does, you know, you assume that that's when Moses is handed the Ten Commandments, right? Well, there's actually two or three bits and pieces that are referred to there. And I, I think that's what um, Mayor is going to uh, introduce to us, the oral um, commandments as well as right. the written Right. So when Maimonides introduces the idea of there being an oral Torah in addition to a written Torah, he actually refers to it using the word perush. So the oral Torah is characterized as an explanation of the written Torah. And there's a beautiful story in the Talmud where a person comes to the famous rabbi Hillel, who you might have even heard of before. He's Mayor, got... could, you, could you tell our listeners Talmud. what the Talmud is? Yes. Ah, oh man. Okay. Um, we're sorry hold on can we, can we no 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 don't, don't about let's let's bracket the question of what the talmud is and i'll come okay. back to it okay, okay. because we'll, we'll get fair. there okay all right. all right so there's a beautiful story where somebody comes to, to hillel and he says uh teach me just the written torah i want the written torah don't give me this oral torah stuff it would be very easy to throw this person out and say oh come on like you aren't serious but instead you know hill is a very i don't want to say easygoing guy but he's he's extremely say um accommodating acco yeah accommodating is is a good word for for how he treats people in these situations so he's accommodating he 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 sees the guy and uh he's he teaches him the alphabet so then he says okay and come back tomorrow and we'll continue and the guy comes back the following day and he, he sits him down again and he teaches, teaches him the alphabet again, but giving different sounds to all the letters. He says, wait, hold on. This is totally different. He says, well, what do you know? He's like, well, that's, that's why you need the oral Torah. There are certain things which can't be written down. This is just in the nature of information where you can, you can record as much as you want, but there's always going to be a layer of interpretation which is absolutely necessary for understanding what's going on, that if you write it down, well, you need another layer of interpretation on top of that, which is why the process of oral Torah is always deepening and always developing and always continuing, because there, there by definition can be no end. This is like a, a Gödelian problem, like Kurt Gödel uh, with the, the Gödel and Completeness Theorem. The only way to um, make sense of one system is going to be on a higher level, uh, an encompassing, a system that encompasses that. So that's kind of the, the nature of oral Torah. And it starts on the level of the whole people already at Mount Sinai. And, and Moses is teaching that, uh, Moses is teaching that just as he's teaching written Torah as well. And that continues through the generations. And eventually, as we're going into uh, going into exile for the second time, uh, after the Romans have destroyed the temple, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, uh, Rabbi Judah the Prince, I think is, is how it's usually done in English. He realizes that the oral Torah is going to be lost in very great part if it remains oral. So up until, the, uh, only oral, strictly oral, up until this point, it has been absolutely forbidden to write it down and teach it from writings. 100% absolutely forbidden. People made private notes. Nobody ever taught from those notes. Nobody ever shared notes. That was not done. It was, it was permissible to take notes, but so that you could memorize it. It had to be oral. And he made a very radical move of saying, listen, et la sot la shem, there's a time to act for Hashem, uh, um, the, the, the simple meaning of the verses, 
there's a time to act for God because they've uprooted your Torah. The uh, drasha, the interpretation that he gives to it is there's a time for act, to act for Hashem and it's going to be as if we're actually uprooting the Torah. It's a terrifying thing, but we're going to have to go against this very fundamental part of our tradition in order for this to survive, even if in a defective form. But there, there needs to be a way to preserve it. And so he, he spearheads the process of codifying the Mishnah. So that's the Mishnah. And now the Talmud. The Talmud is the next layer of oral Torah on the Mishnah, which essentially is an interpretation or a huge bundle of interpretations of them. Can you give a ballpark of when these were recorded or started to be recorded, acknowledging that it's dealing with oral tradition that's been handed down for centuries and centuries? Right. So, or uh, millennia. <laughs> let me see. Uh, so the, the Mishnah was... Um, was developed after the destruction of the Second Temple. Okay. So we're talking mm -hmm. um, about 2,000 years ago. Yeah, we're, I, I don't know 70, the history right? well enough. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, yeah. Judah the Prince, is uh, third century, I think. Okay. Um, and then the Talmud, there are, again, Talmud on the one hand describes a process, and on the other hand today describes two particular encyclopedic work. So one is the the Jerusalem Talmud, the Talmud Yerushalmi, um, which is earlier, and that's, I think, like 5th or 6th century. I'm not totally sure. I'm almost certainly, I'm almost certain that this is hotly debated among scholars, mm, academic of scholars. Of course it is. Of course um, it is. From, from a, a traditional, um, from, from the perspective of a practitioner, the date is not usually relevant, but yeah. sometimes when you have to ask about actualia, like what precisely is the situation we're talking about? What are we referring to? The historical circumstances for composition do become extremely important. Yeah. Um, but those are those are more edge cases than, than anything else. Mm -hmm. um, so you have the Jerusalem Talmud, and then a few centuries after that, you have the Babylonian Talmud. They're called that because the Jerusalem Talmud, well, it wasn't written in Jerusalem, but it was written, uh, or put together in Eretz Israel, in the land of Israel. And it's also called the Palestinian Talmud. Palestinian is um, not a nice term, uh, to use for it because that's the colonialist term. That's what Romans called this area um, after the temple was destroyed. Um, but calling the Jerusalem Talmud is still a little bit strange. Um, I don't know why we do that. But and then the, the Babylonian Talmud, Talmud Bavli, is the one that uh, is more frequently learned. It's stylistically quite different. Um, and that was put together in Bavel, in, uh, in the uh, area around uh, present-day Baghdad. So after, after things were destroyed here by the Romans, um, the sort of the center of Jewish life really became uh, uh, Mesopotamia, became Iraq, became that area around Baghdad. And the major centers of learning were, were all there for quite a while. Now, so. Mayor, just for my learning purposes, there's also, as part of the Talmud, I don't know how to say it, Jig. Gemara, Gemara. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, Gemara. How do you say that? Gemara. Yeah, it's, Gemara. it seems to my um, new ears, it seems as if you're always interpreting the interpretations of the. <laughs> um, that's right. Yes. That's absolutely right. And, so and, like I, when, and I love what you said about um, that. That's okay. That process doesn't end. It shouldn't end because in. Um, you know, one of the things Christians like to fight over is whether or not canon, um, what's in canon, and whether canon is closed, when it was closed. Um, and, and that's something I have come to respect so much about the Jewish faith. Because you're, okay, I call it wrestling. 
you're okay to keep wrestling, um, to, to look at these interpretations, to consider um, the culture, the context of today, et cetera, et cetera. So if you could speak maybe to that idea of interpreting interpretations. Well, and something yeah. I'll chime in really quick. Yeah, Frank. Mm -hmm. We do that is that this idea of oral Torah it can sound really spooky to Christians because we we see the Bible as written, and now that it's written, it's written, and that's it. We can't add anything. We, you know, that's it. Um, and so, on first glance, first hearing of, oh no, there's an oral Torah. Is this something that we can accept? Except there is a flavor. There's a kind of way that this happens in Christianity. Um, this is why we have denomination. Um, denominations, um, we have many different flavors of Protestantism um, that all are interpreting some part of our scripture a little bit differently. And some of our interpretations lead to why there are Methodists, why there are Amish, Quakers, etc. So it might sound strange at first for us as a Christian to hear like, oh no, there's an there's all these different ways you can interpret. But if we go back to our theologians, we go back to Calvin and Luther, well, Calvin and Luther and Augustine, um, they all came up with their interpretations that begat interpretations, that begat mm -hmm. denominations, sure. and that's how we're here. So on first glance, it sounds strange, but in fact, uh, we, we also do this. We just don't call it an oral interpretation. That, that's well, exactly right. This is so important. This isn't something extra. This is the nature of reading. This is the nature of interpretation. You must have an oral Torah. There is always going to be an aspect of the experience of reading, of the nature of reading, which cannot be written down, but might eventually need to be written down in order to transmit it. Um, well, and when, yeah, I was, yeah. when I was listening to your first podcast, and it, and it comes in now too, um, just as a listener, I might suggest that sometime you bring on um, an Orthodox Christian guest. Mm -hmm. have one We've been talking I, about that. Yeah, yeah because I think yeah. a lot of what we're uncomfortable with, to use Frank's um, word, they wouldn't be as uncomfortable with. They are, um, they are used to mystery. They are used to teachings from the Desert Fathers, right? That again, makes us yeah. nervous sometimes. Um, so that would be a super interesting conversation because I do think mm. there are segments of Christianity who are, you know, a, a mystic, for example, someone who's very into contemplative prayer, um, they're going to have a different understanding of this um, than than what some of your traditional um, American Christian might have. That's very interesting. Well, and what, what you all have been talking about, and this is particularly what I appreciate about your work, Tracy, is this <laughs> idea that these are layers of interpretation, that that's what you're bringing to the table, Mayor, and then Tracy, by being willing to explore an ecumenical um, approach to Christianity and this idea that, yes, we do have these layers, but that doesn't, maybe pre-examining our own presuppositions and our assumptions, uh, I think our theology matters. I think it's very important. But we also holding, to some extent, you know, holding firmly to the essentials, but then being open that we can learn something from other denominations, that maybe I've missed something in my little, my own little corner corner of Christianity. And I appreciate how you've helped open a dialogue or a place for people to have dialogue and not be as threatened or scared by that. 
And In how, a sense, Tracy, you're writing the Talmud. I like it. For, for your community. <laughs> we'll go with that. I'm, well, I'm serious. I, I say often, I, in different interviews, um, I, I'm sure I have it written somewhere as well. I used to read the Bible and to go to church and all of those things to, to find the right answer. Mm. And now I do those things to find God, um, yeah. for, for a Christian to find Christ. Um, it, and it may sound um, similar. Oh, it's different. It can be really different. Um, mm. So again, back to what what's your interest in Judaism? Um, that's a lot of it. I, I think the the way um, the way they open up the Old Testament to me, the conversations I've had um, with Mayor, both you know, private message and um, openly on Twitter, just continue to uh, expand my mind. Um, and yeah, that that gets me excited for sure. So may, well, what we, you just? I'm sorry. No, go ahead. What you just said about you know, first looking for the right answer and then now looking for God or looking for Jesus. Um, I think that takes us back around to something that you said earlier, Mayor, is that, you know, that prayer was very self-focused originally. And we can bracket out that self isn't necessarily all bad, but that Torah is so much more. And could you bring us maybe back and develop a little bit more of the idea of Torah for us, Mayor? <laughs> um, let me well, see. Or we could just, um, we had talked about digging well, yeah, into yeah, Deuteronomy actually, 31 and 32. Yeah, Maybe that's actually, where we head now. Well, yeah, here, let me let me give you an introduction to that because that's okay. that's really exactly where we're heading. Okay, here, I'll cut that out. Okay. <laughs> yes, actually, that's a fantastic segue into, into some texts that I, I thought we might discuss. So before receiving the the quote-unquote Ten Commandments. So we're Exodus chapter 19, approximately verses 3 through 9 here. So we have, uh, So I, I lifted you up on the wings of eagles and I brought you to me, right? This is what Moses is supposed to tell to the people before they receive, before they, I shouldn't say before they receive the Torah exactly, because it creates a, or the wrong impression. Before they stand, before god at the mountain right nobody has an expectation of receiving a book at this we are a nation that has escaped slavery we're standing in the foot of a mountain and we know that something big is about to occur and moses is going to give an introduction to it and god tells him i'm going to tell you exactly what the introduction is and you better be very careful to not add or subtract from it you give them this introduction i want them to know that i love them and that's why i'm doing that to Stop paraphrase it, it right it. yeah don't you dare tell them that you're going to give them the answers to existence don't you dare tell them that you do this and it's the meaning of your life don't you dare tell them that this is your key to heaven or anything like that like all that is nonsense all that's incidental if it's true even right don't touch that don't talk about that the focus here is the love is the relation so that's that's the whole introduction to torah that we that's where it all begins for us so then after that experience uh, I'm going to jump forward to Exodus 24. Uh, mm -hmm. So this is after hearing the Ten Commandments. And at this point, Moses has gone up the mountain to get the tablets. It's not, if I remember the movie correctly, it's been a few decades. Um, <laughs> it's not like the Chuck Heston version where he goes up the mountain and the tablets are written right before his eyes the first time. It is that way the second time, but not the first time because Moses thought he was going to be up there, but then God sent him down. He was like, no, no, you have to make sure everybody knows about the, the borders around the mountain nobody should get too close and when moses is down there with the people it's like ha ha and now we're gonna start 
<laughs> right. Um, it's very funny. People miss a lot of the humor in the Hebrew Bible. So there's a lot of funny stuff. But he did um, come down with 15 commandments, and he dropped a tablet and then said, I, <laughs> I can't put them back right? together That's, right. Or is was the Monty Python a little too far? <laughs> Wait, that wasn't Monty Python. That was, um, what's his name? Uh, Mel Brooks. <laughs> <laughs> but you raised something you in a passing comment i think you've got a, something that's very interesting is when you go and you read the hebrew bible in hebrew or you read the new testament in greek the different books and different parts sound very different and when they get translated mm -hmm. oftentimes yeah. they're flat you don't hear all these nuances that you get and so yeah you it's easy to miss especially culturally and then you've got the flattening of the language so so there's yeah. Yeah. that everybody should go learn Hebrew and Greek. But. Right, but something real quick <laughs> I want to point out as the language nerd too is that these books get their name in Hebrew, the whole book, by the first word that is spoken in that section. And there's a whole bunch of sections and that's pretty much how every name gets its name is just because that's the, kind of the first significant word because like when I look at my fancy Tanakh, my JPS Tanakh, it says that this is Mishpatim. That's right, we're in Parshat Mishpatim. Yeah, so... You know, in English, we're calling this Exodus, which I mean, like th this is the whole book is about way more than just how they left a place. It's about way more than an exit, you know, Mishpatim. Which is what in English? So Mishpatim, mishpatim is like rulings, like judicial ruling. Okay, I... And we're, we're referring to the section now. So this is after the Decalogue, after the Ten Commandments. Um, it says, These are the, the rulings that Moshe set before the people. And it's that long legalistic section in the middle of the book of Exodus, uh, featuring a lot about oxes goring other oxes mm -hmm. and people <laughs> and digging dishes and not yeah. digging ditches and not filling them in and, and all that kind of stuff. So that's that's Mishpatim. And it's uh, I imagine that that could feel like something of a slap in the face. Uh, a legalistic slap in the face to, to people who were, to Christians who were really enjoying Exodus up until that point. Right. Now, um, at these chapters, so we have within, at least within Old Testament scholarship, you've got the Decalogue in Exodus 20 and then Exodus uh, 21 to 23 are often called the Book of the Covenant. Mm -hmm. And then this right. will be following that. So that is so, kind of coming along the idea of Mishpatim. So that's yeah. actually exactly what I wanted to point out about this. So the the point that I wanted to point to in Mishpatim, I, I didn't want to do a whole thing about Ox's Goring. We could do that another time. I'm happy to. It's, it's really I'll very listen. fascinating. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, but there's a good reason for calling it the Book of the Covenant, though actually we'll refer to the entire Torah, the entire written Torah as the Book of the Covenant. Um, but but there's an interesting reason for identifying this as that, and that's because Moshe, Moses goes to the people and, and he shares with them the things that uh, he's now heard somewhat more exclusively, um, because first there was a public gathering, and then there were the people couldn't hear everything, um, as we find out later in Deuteronomy. Um, so Moses now comes back and tells them things that they weren't able to hear, but he did hear. Um, and then the people respond, and they say, you know, all that Hashem has commanded, we will do. And then they do one better than that. A little bit later, they say, all that he has spoken, we will um, we, we will do and we will hear, or we will do and we will understand. And it's interesting that they put the doing before the understanding here. Like, we're going to do it, we're going to jump into this, and then experientially we'll figure things out as we go. Like, we know we need to jump into that. And afterwards the understanding will come, or 
we're going to do the written Torah and then we'll understand through the, the oral Torah with all the work that that entails. And it is a huge work. I just want to pause really quick for people who may not have heard the first episode. Hashem is the way that Mayor is referring to God. Yeah, there you go. Hopefully not too much of a segue, but I'm curious and it, it very much ties to, our, I know, Chasing Squirrels. That'd be a good name in the podcast, a subtitle. <laughs> we were talking about uh, how different denominations form um, on, on the inside mm-hmm. of And Mayor, mm-hmm. I remember, I'm thinking, I don't remember, was last spring or maybe even winter when we had a Zoom call with um, three or four of us and we I know in that call several times it came up how do you li- um, call yourself an Orthodox Jew is that a correct term if I get to define myself I'll tell you the Torah and mitzvot and am a hundred percent on board for the traditional interpretation of those if you call me Orthodox I won't object because okay. you know, practically that's that's basically what I am there's reform, there's... Um, I'm definitely not reformed. What I, what I am getting at, what I'm getting at is that Judaism is very broad, as is Christianity. However, I feel as if Judaism offers space for that. Um, and not only, you know, do you have these different interpretations, but you also, um, you, you have the Orthodox who live so um, conservatively, almost like taking a step back in time whenever you read and learn about their ways. And then you have these Reformed Jews who you are not, um, that are also living um, <laughs> a, a brand of Judaism. So to me, um, I, I often wonder, and, and I, ask, uh, I ask about this a lot, you're so you're so learned and you well don't don't push it (laughs) you can refer to these different um interpretations and to the talmud and to that i'm assuming that there are um some jewish individuals who could not Um, yeah for sure can you speak can you speak kind of to that space um that you seem to create for one another Hmm. um i um i think maybe Maybe the most interesting way I could respond is by way of personal story. Uh, so I grew up inside the Reformed Jewish world, and um, my family did what we knew how to do, which wasn't very much. But the fact that we were Jews was extremely important to us. And I would say that within the Reformed Jewish world, there's a continuum of uh, there's a a continuum of practically everything within the Reformed Jewish world is very, very broad, and and it really depends where you are. Um, and and within one congregation, you'll find people all over the place. Um, but uh, I would say that maybe the most important continuum within the Reformed Jewish world is how important is it to you that you're a Jewish? Because for many people, it's uh, yeah, I'm nominally Jewish. Like, yeah, I want the ritual of my son having a bar mitzvah, right? Whereas to say that somebody had a bar mitzvah is just like grammatic. Grammatically, it's nonsense. It's like you become a bar mitzvah. Right? Mm-hmm. We talked about that term in the the previous uh, episode. But the um, but there there's a a kind of sentimentality and attachment to ritual, or or maybe an ethnic attachment. You know, for me. Being Jewish is showing up at driving to synagogue on Saturday morning, which is totally forbidden, and uh, and eating a bagel with lox and cream cheese, and I feel Jewish, and that gives me my sense of Jewish identity. And uh, listen, I mean, <laughs> it's ridiculous, but um, but the fact that people are identifying is uh, is important to me, 
the fact that it matters to people that they're Jewish. Um, ethnicity is certainly a component of who we are. Um, it's, it's not um, even the main component. Um, but, but, you know, it, it is a part of what's going on. Um, so you, you have that kind of continuum. Anyway, I grew up in the Reformed Jewish world. Um, we did what we knew how. We didn't know much. I was really very interested in stuff, and I was told by the rabbi I grew up with. She had, you know, trained us to think that the, the Orthodox were uh, retrograde uh, primitives and, um, and that we had gotten really the, the best kind of Jewish education. And it turned out I knew nothing. Um, and when I went to... Uh, uh, college. I went to a very Jewish college intentionally. I went to Brandeis. I wanted to be with Jews because I grew up in Virginia. And despite having a synagogue community, I just felt an absence of, of Jewish community overall. Um, even though, you know, all my parents' close friends, not really by design, more by coincidence, um, uh, were, were Jewish. Um, so I grew up with uh, all of our close family friends were Jewish. And, and so I went to went to a college looking for a more holistic Jewish environment. And what I found there was kind of a continuation of the youth group environment I had grown up with, or I, I had had in high school. I said, this really isn't, like, I want to be an adult. Like, it's time to, <laughs> I want more. Um, yeah. But I didn't really know what that meant, so I couldn't do it for myself. Um, and the conservatives just seemed wishy-washy to me and the orthodox i knew were primitives and and so i wouldn't get involved with those people and um and then after two years of basically taking vacation from jewish um i wound up getting involved with a congregation maybe i should tell the story so there was this girl i had a crush on and um, <laughs> always always, always. Mm. within familiar frank yeah, there doing mean, that. Yeah, we were, yeah, right. We we were both musicians. Uh, we were uh, singing in the chamber choir of, uh, of the school. She was a soprano. I was a bass. And um, we we were performing at some event, and we got into this interesting conversation about um, uh, feminism. I was interested in the the sort of theoretical literary criticism criticism side. She was more of an activist. And we wound up going out on a date, which is a it was an utter disaster. Uh, two years after our disastrous date, she invited me kind of out of the blue to go with her to the bar mitzvah of a student of hers. And we hopped in her car Saturday morning on Shabbat and we drove off to this bar mitzvah at this reform synagogue and I absolutely fell in love with the place because people were really praying in a way that I had never never experienced before and really singing in a way that I had I had never experienced I, I would had done you know years of, of music religious music Christian Jewish whatever but I I had never really been a part of music as a mode of worship for real mm. and and here it was all of a sudden it was like this was real in a way that I had never seen it before and the people there were loved this kid. They showed up for this kid in a way that I had never seen in a community before. Because like where I grew up, the people who showed up for the bar mitzvah ceremony were people who were probably not members of the congregation. They were friends of the family and family who just came as a part of like, you know, they want to honor the family and whatever it is. And, you know, it's that kind of thing. And the people there knew this kid and loved him. And, and it wasn't because they were related to him. It's because they knew him. They were there every week. These people spent time together. They were a real community, which was what I had been looking for so much. And then all of a sudden I was there. I went to one of the the leaders of the community I said, how do I get involved? He said, teach in the Hebrew school. I said, great. And I thought I had a great Jewish education. It turns out I knew nothing. Fortunately, the principal 
Freda Hamilton was a master teacher and uh, a scholar, and um, and she basically took me on as a study partner, and um, and with her I learned how to learn. I began to learn how to learn, and just following that love for the learning, which grew in me, I I came here eventually to Israel. I, I knew I had to immerse myself in the language. I knew I wanted even more of a holistic community. And so that, that's how I found my way here. And then when I was here, I guess you could say that being Orthodox is the sort of natural direction that you would go if you care about Torah and mitzvot. If you're serious about learning, if you're interested in being a part of Jewish life in Israel, the default mode is Orthodox. I got to say that these these labels, Reform and Orthodox, have absolutely nothing to do with the, the way that those terms are used in yeah. uh, Christianity. Right to uh, point out. Yeah, they're, I mean, I, I don't know. Yeah. yeah, there's yeah. like, it's not even worth trying to compare how the terms are being used. Yeah. Um, and to discuss the history, listen, people, go to Wikipedia, check it out. Um, <laughs> I'm happy to talk about it another time, but it, it's long and complicated. And I'm not trying to say that Jewish Orthodoxy has a, a monopoly on truth. It mm-hmm. does. Um, and I'm not trying to say that Orthodoxy is free of problems. It is certainly not. And the, the fact that there are these other denominations, to come back to what you were asking, Tracy, is a direct result of the kinds of problems that we're struggling with. So historically, you just had... Jews. You had different ethnic groups of Jews. So you had Ashkenazi Jews throughout, you know, Eastern Europe and Western Europe. You had Sephardi Jews, Mizrahi Jews, Middle Eastern Jews. Uh, you had Italian Jews. You had these different, you know, ethnic ethnic groups. But basically, everybody could have conversations and everybody agreed to similar premises, even if you could have very deep arguments about particular issues. And then modernity hits, and the world opens up to Jews, and now you have this reform movement that comes along and says, well, let's be modern, let's assimilate into the society that's now said they want us. Look what's happening. It's amazing. Think of culture of Germany in the the 19th century. That's an amazing culture to be a part of. The literature, the music, the, it's fantastic. Like that opens up to you and you aren't going to be a part of that? You'd be insane to reject that unless you understand that becoming a part of that could also be a threat to who you are. And so there you have your first fission in the community where you have, it's such a mistake to call this the first fission, but because there have been you know issues all along <laughs> the way historically. But this is like, in terms of our modern situation, like this is where reform comes from. And then in reaction to that, you have eventually another movement that defines itself as the conservative movement led in significant part by Rav uh, Avram Yeshua Heschel. Fantastic, fantastic books. Uh, I recommend them highly. In America, you'll find many, many Jews who treat Judaism essentially as an ethnicity. And it is also an ethnicity for sure. But if you're talking religion, I suppose when I've spoken with religious Christians on many occasions, the the tendency, because of the context of the conversation, not because of any misconception on their part, is to treat Judaism as an ism, as a Judaism, as a religion. On a different occasion, I'll make an argument to you that uh, Torah is actually radically anti-religion. Well, I mean, the, the quick version of it is, look, there's all this idolatry. And then the Torah comes along and says, all that's false. Okay. Yeah. So that's what I'll tell my kindergartners. Yeah. yeah. We, we, We're against we, religion. We are very, very strong atheists for most of the gods. But to try to turn our identity, to try to turn Yisrael into 
a religion is a mistake, to try to turn us into just an ethnicity mistake. These are all kind of components of Mordechai Kaplan, who founded the Reconstructionist Movement, which I didn't mention before. He called us a civilization. Herman Wouk, author of fiction, he's Orthodox, by the way, he calls us, I think, a portable civilization. Usually a civilization is rooted to a particular place. We are rooted, but we've wandered around an awful lot. Something that I think was really interesting that you said as part of your journey, you talked about going to this service and seeing people who were praying as you had never seen people pray and singing as you hadn't seen and that idea of music. But we see music and song in Torah as well, in in what we today might call the first five books of Moses. And you're giving me a segue into the third source that I wanted to bring. Okay, there we go. (laughs) All right. After Mayor Simcoe, your life story is boring. Let's get to the source. Thank you for that. Truly. Thank you. (laughs) Chapter 32 of Deuteronomy, or as Jews call it, Parshat Ha'azinu. Which is? Uh, what does it mean? It, it is basically the, one of the first key words of, of that section. And Ha'azinu, uh, you could, it comes from the word for ear. It has the same root. So it's like, lend me your ears. Um, give me your ears. Listen up. Um, hear me. Um, now, just to, I always figure that if I have a question, somebody else. Um, when you say section, you don't mm-hmm. mean book of Deuteronomy. You mean whatever four or five mm-hmm. chapters make up this section. Right. That's that's correct. So we have um, so we you know, we have the the same five books that you have mm-hmm. in terms of division of the text, and then uh, chapters and verses are things that, practically speaking, we'll use them today, but they're not a part of how we divide things traditionally. Um, and they're actually extremely deceptive in some ways for um, for how the Torah is organic, how it organically divides itself. So within the text of the Torah, um, there are, you could say, paragraphs and subparagraphs. Um, and the in order to, uh, I guess, here's something very, very practical. Here's a call of a- call to action for for Christians who are interested in in understanding um, the Torah. On, um, I, I would say, you, maybe I'm chauvinist for saying this, but to, for understanding it on its own terms, look at the paragraph divisions that are actually a part of the text, as opposed to the chapter division. You can see those online if you go to. Uh, Mm, you can only see those online if you are reading Hebrew. Those are very, very important. And the the thing to do is to look at each subparagraph and then each super paragraph, each paragraph, and ask yourself, what is this section about? What is the theme here? What's going on here? How does this relate to what came before? How does this relate to what came after? How is this subparagraph a part of this paragraph? You know, that those kinds of questions. It's very simple structural questions. Um, will give you a sense of the context of what's going on. So in addition to those paragraphs, um, we have an annual cycle of reading. And the annual cycle um, divides the Torah into uh, 53 uh, sections. And those 53 sections, each one of them includes many paragraphs inside of it. Um, and each week on Shabbat, we'll read one of those uh, sections publicly. The Hebrew term for one of those sections is parasha, is uh, portion, kind of sounds almost exactly like that word. So ha'azinu is one of the parashiyot, one of, one of the parshas in the in the Torah. So we're in Sefer Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy, and we're toward the very end of it in a section in a parasha called ha'azinu. And ha'azinu is 
the song that Moshe gives over to the people, and then a little bit after that. So do we want to step back just a little bit to the previous <laughs> section? Because that really lays the groundwork. It says what's going on here. Why a song? Right. So there's this introduction that Moshe gives to the song. The song itself is so mysterious. Um, it's very, uh, there are amazing debates about what the song means. Um, but the introduction to the song is extremely telling. So I'm in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse, I think, verse 19. So, so Moshe says to the people, oh, this is a very important thing about the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy is Moshe's words, Moses's words. That's not to say they aren't the words of God. This is, this is also the word of God, but this is on Moses's initiative. This is Moses articulating something. I, I think it's very, very important to understand the development of the personality of Moses, the development of Torah in relationship to Moses. So anyway, so Moses says to the people, write down this poem or write down this song. The word for poem and song are the same word. They're both shira. Or there are two forms for this word. Shira is feminine and shir yeah. is masculine. When we say, so, yeah. So, um, so I'm just, I'm reading NIV now. Write now. Write down this song and teach it to the Israelites. So, are you saying that that's Moses saying that, or Moses is instructing the people? He's saying, write down this song, teach it to the people of Israel, the children of Israel, put it in their mouths in order that this poem, this song, will be a witness for Ben Israel. So that's, that's an interesting point of difference because most Christian readings, uh, going from verse 18 where God is saying, and I will certainly hide my face in that day because of all their wickedness in turning to other gods, now write down this song. Most Christians, or at least the ones I know, are reading this as the continued speech of God God yes. telling Moses, now you write this down and then you teach it. So this is an this is an interesting difference in the way that's being interpreted. Oh. oh that also makes sense. E, that that Jewish perspective. That makes sense too. Um it, No, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. What you said is what you said is better. This should this should be read as okay. the, yes, you're right. This should be read as the continuation of, of God's speech to Moses. That's, you're absolutely right. Um, I got a little bit turned around because this winds up becoming an obligation on all of us today. To so teach even though this, it? Yes. Okay. So we have an obligation. Each, there's a mitzvah. There's a commandment for, um, uh, for Jews to write themselves uh, every Every Jew should, Jewish man, I suppose. I should check into that, actually. Um, Jewish men, particularly? At least every Jewish man is obligated to write a book of the Torah for himself. That's Genesis through Deuteronomy. Um, and that's not just typing it up. Um, and it's not just writing it out by hand um, on whatever paper you feel. Like, there's an art to writing it out. And... You either need to basically pay, you need to commission somebody to do this, or you need to do it yourself. Mm. Um, 
that's that's an absolute obligation um and um well that makes me think about the command to the king in i guess yes Hezekiah. yeah yep. yes yeah, that you shall yes. write your own copy of the law so right. is it related to that command yeah a king presumably would already have a Sefer Torah, a book of Torah for himself. And then when he becomes king, he needs to write another one for himself. Okay. Um, so that he's supposed to have two, um, uh, personally. Right? Okay. So, um, but what's funny is that here, it doesn't say anything about writing the whole Torah. It just says write this song. The song. But we aren't allowed to write just one section of the Torah on its own. Right? You can't just write one section of Genesis through Deuteronomy and say, okay, this is a finished product. It doesn't work that way. So, so when the obligation to write this song becomes an obligation to write the whole Torah. And so this song that Moses gives over to us winds up effectively integrating the whole Torah into the song. This makes the whole Torah a song. The whole Torah is a poem. The Talmud is literary exegesis, is literary interpretation. You wonder how, like, why are there so many Jews into uh, literary criticism? It's because that, <laughs> this is our lifeblood. This, this is what we've trained to do for thousands of years. Like the sensitivity to language, that's what Talmud does. It looks at every word, sometimes every, every letter of every word. Yeah. Why is this letter here? Like this, this letter seems to be extra. This word is definitely extra. Like, why would you repeat this? There's so many things in the Torah that look like they're repetitious. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's just repeating that. It's poetical. Like, no, no, it's not just poetical. Like, the Torah doesn't waste words. This isn't just, like, so you feel like it's, it's pretty. It's like, no, 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 everything here means something. So we need to figure out what does this mean. This is a love letter to us. We can't just let, you know, a single word from the love letter that our lover gave us just go to, go to waste. We want to... We want, we want to know everything that's contained in there. Wow. It's interesting because you were talking about, you know, extra words or this is repetitious. And, and from a scholarly point of view, oftentimes it, it will be explained because it was originally an oral text and people would have heard it. And mm -hmm. if yes. you ever get a chance to sit down and just, you know, if you've got a version app, you can, a lot of the Bible translations will have a section where you can listen to having it read to you and you will notice different things when you listen to it mm -hmm. and that repetition. So that's one of the things that is often used with scholarship to explain it, but I, I love your emphasis there and focusing on it from a perspective. The, the song aspect is very important. When we, when we read Torah publicly, it's not just read, it's mm -hmm. sung, right? So um, there, there are different styles of, of, of reading depending on where you're from, um, but they, they all have, all the different reading styles are, um, give you, the music gives you both, uh, it, it's both music and it's grammatical information. So when you listen to the song, you understand where the periods and commas go. And so this becomes very relevant to how Christians do Christianity because we have worship songs that we get out of certain passages in the Bible. But in Christianity, what we do is we dial into a verse or maybe one or two verses and we write a song based on that. Um, I can't think of a single song in Christian worship where we just take the whole chunk of scripture and sing it. The magnific 
Magnificat. Is that how you say it? Yeah, but I mean, that's not commonly used. Yeah, the Magnificat, Mary's Magnificat out of Luke. In Protestant Christianity, it's not Protestant Christianity. Right. Yes, I am. But but how often is it used within Orthodoxy? I don't know. Is it something that is sung regularly? I don't know. And I'm wondering, as as Frank's talking, um, I don't know enough about um, Gregorian chants and um, Mm. Orthodox. I, I know, you know, in Orthodox services and stuff, my guess is that they do a bit more of that than we do um that than where uh, evangelical christianity has gone but yeah i, I yeah my but, mind but, is is going over this idea of but we, the what song representing but what we've got is like apparently in judaism mayor straight up he sings his scripture that's how you hear it so you hear um you know maybe the difference in style uh, is melody, or maybe it's emphasis, you know, maybe it's some point in it. Whereas, like a lot of our identity in Christianity is the style of wor- worship music we may have, um, where we might have totally different instruments and kinds of worship. Maybe some Christian churches have bands, maybe others do it a cappella. But but you know, it's a, how we're going to take a few verses and make a song with it. And what we're learning is that over in Judaism. It's how they sing their scripture. Their scripture and their worship is one and the same. Is that yeah. a fair assessment, Mary? Like script, your song and your scripture and your worship start to kind of blend together. And- um, we have a lot of music that is, you know, verses from the Torah or from Psalms or from from wherever it is that we sing. That um, they're they're tunes that aren't formalized in the same way. Sure. Um, like if you so on the source sheet that that we'll publish with this episode if you know hebrew you'll see the letters and you'll see the vowels and then you'll see some other marks around them and those other marks there are cantillation marks so i might do those one way if i'm uh if my family's from poland and i'll do them a different way if my family's from rome or from livorno or from baghdad or from teman uh, yemen um but but they preserve the same grammatical information, and um, in, in, in principle, you know, if I know it one way, I can just kind of translate it into the other way in a straightforward fashion. It's not like learning a, a totally different melody. Right. Um, but then we also have lots of melodies that are, um, you know, unique to different communities. Um, partially along ethnic lines, partially geographic, partially stylistic. Right. Um, you know, if you Hasidic melodies are very famous today. Um, there's, you know, for I'll, I'll put some links uh, in the, the the show notes. So, but, but maybe so the difference is that your Torah is a is a song that maybe is sung a little bit differently, but we have different song in Christianity. Well, and we we treat scripture differently. Scripture is a book. It is literature. We don't think of it as a song. Right. That's not to say we don't hold it in high regard, but I, that brings us kind of to the question of music and poetry in the ancient world and the way that we learn things. And, you know, I can't help but think of, you know, if a song that, was popular when during my senior year in high school was on the song will come on I can immediately start singing that song and I will remember places that I associate hearing that song 
Um, music does something in our mind. We remember it. It it become it, maybe would it be fair to say that to some extent we internalize some of it. And so, if all of a sudden, if scripture is song, and if scripture is sung, then it becomes, I think, a bigger part of who we are and what is shaping us. I think that that's a very incredible way to think about scripture. And you know, I mean, how many of us have tried to memorize sections of scripture, and you go through and it's, oh, this is great. I'm going to memorize this. And after a week, you're like, this is too hard. And you throw your hands up. But Mm -hmm. if it's being done with music, it's something entirely different. We remember it differently. We process it. I would take that. I would take that one step further. Okay. It's almost as if that was the intention. Exactly. Because it's oral and because Hebrew is more poetic in my understanding than um, the English language. So yes, yes, yes. To what, to what you're saying, Jen, Um, I I think uh, a master planned that way. Well, and then I think about poetry and so this is where my dissertation was, was in mm. Psalms and it was looking at translation poetry. And so this is kind of my, my area of Gina, but poetry also forces us to slow down. Um, and when we read poetry, we have to slow down because it's using images and intertextual references to other mm-hmm. events, or if it wouldn't be an, a text, intertextual, but it's references outside of itself. And you have to slow down and process. And so, because you said this could be poem or song and this idea and talking about the, you had mentioned that Deuteronomy 32, this is interpret, it's mysterious. It's interpreted in different ways, but it is something that is given from God to Moses and teach this to the Israelite people, teach this and everyone is to learn this. And you've expanded it from just this chapter to the entirety of the five books. But I, I mean, let's just focus in for a moment. You talked about the various ways that this chapter is interpreted and that it's, I don't remember if you said it was hotly debated, but you've got these very different approaches to it. It has slowed Mm -hmm. down and it means we're processing it and we're meditating on it and it's becoming, we're internalizing it, even if it is poem. So you've got that part where it's memory but then you also get this part where it's deepening your process. Yeah, I guess I I have a few thoughts there. One is that the, so when you're listening to a poem, it can be limiting and almost an act of violence to the poem Hmm. to read, to, 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 to put too much of your interpretation into the poem as you're hearing it. Mm. Because if you only hear it the way you have heard it, Mm. if you only hear it the way you have interpreted it, you aren't really letting the poem speak to you. You're basically using the poem to recapitulate some idea that you already had. Good. Right? Mm -hmm. So, So on the one hand, on the one hand, once you know these different interpretations, the, the words be, can become much richer mm-hmm. when you hear them all at once, right? But you have to, it, the, the, the way to use interpretation when you're hearing the poem, I think is to, um, it's, not, it's not like uh, 
direct mapping like okay this word i know means this this word i know means this it's like the interpretation has to be a part of you so that the poem can make that part of you resonate like that needs to be one string in your heart that the poem is going to cause to vibrate sympathetically and you need to be open to hearing other things that you haven't heard before because that's the only way things will continue right so if i'm reading hazinu you know i want to know the interpretation of rabbi yehuda and i want to know the interpretation of rabbi nehemia and their um and their disagreements one reads this is about the past and one reads this is something in the future right those are wildly divergent things, but I need to be able to hear both those things at the same time. If I don't hear both those things at the same time, I'm just hearing a monotone. If I hear them at the same time, then I'm hearing harmony. Well, it's a that, richer experience. And I, that Christian perspective, that's a very valuable perspective. Profound. It, profound, yeah, <laughs> profound. That's, that's yeah. because it's making space for God to sit in a different way, if nothing else. I think there's much mm -hmm, more. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so, but what I'm hearing also is that not only is it make spirit work, which I expect very appropriate, but I think it's also pointing to the idea that we need knowing how different people have interpreted text. Mm. And that's something that you just said, pointing specific scholars. Or, and, right. and Trace, yeah. kind of going back to your book, that what you've written about the Christian experience uh, in church is that, you know, uh, you, you've kind of written a, a, a book of harmony in a way. Um, if we're looking at a different way to look at not all who wander are lost, it's like that's a book of harmonies about the same song of Christianity. Yeah, I think so to a large degree. I, you know, I, processing, I'll process for a week probably after this conversation. Um, but let's take the controversial um, topic of baptism, right? Wait, that's controversy? <laughs> I thought oh, that like yeah, Christians yeah. just oh, yeah. did baptism. Like, what yeah. else is controversial? Oh. No big deal. Oh, buddy. When, how? Body, um, water. If like, if we read those New Testament passages, if you stand on one um, stance and give me your passage, okay, I can see that. And then if you stand here and give me this passage, okay, I can see that. And I don't know, that's not the typical Christian response, but um, Mayor, that I think that's why what you're saying is so profound to me, because I can often see both sides, all sides, several sides, mm -hmm. um, and and I still have a tremendous in, in God. Um, I st continue to grow, you know, so, um, mm -hmm. and, and I examine that a lot. One question I ask myself a lot is what are we, why do, what do we fear in our, in our religion, in our pursuit of Christianity, in our um, Judaism, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's some underlying fear in some of those quests, I think. Um, and well, fear in those arguments, not just quests, but in the argument. Yes. Yeah. And again, I think that goes back to are you are you searching scripture? Are you practicing your faith in order to find God or in order to be right? Mm. Right. Um, you, you talked about baptism. Just I just I want to key in on that for a second because I come from a tradition that does believers baptize of someone who is of an age of understanding who is going to be baptized. I'm trying to define this for mayor. Um, right. I'm trying to draw a question bracket. mark above my head. Like, what are you talking about here? Yeah, so I'm Googling while you're saying it this. It would be someone who is old enough to make their own decision yeah. that they choose to follow Jesus. Is, is that a fair way to yes. describe that, Tracy? Yes. Um, 
Well, I have a. Do you guys agree with each other about baptism? I just we haven't talked about it. No. <laughs> let's I not, agree let's with not, all of it. Yeah, I, I I don't have. I am not strongly opinionated on one side, but I think this will help you understand why. So I, I, I'm within a tradition that does believers baptism, but I have a special needs son. He will never reach what we might call an age of understanding. He is never going to understand concepts that are considered necessary for that. Does he know that he makes bad choices and he chooses yellow or red instead of choosing green sometimes? Oh yeah, he gets that. But does he understand concepts of sin mm. or needing deliverance from that? No. And he, I mean, you know, God can work miracles, but short of God working a miracle, he never will. That's not his capacity. It's yeah. just never going to be within his capacity. And yet I have been talking with our, the leadership, our past, some of the pastors at our church, and actually also the head of our children's program. He's 15. The head of our children's program, which he still participates in, approached me and asked if I would like to consider having Misha baptized. And for a church where the tradition is usually focused on believers' baptism, that they were even open to that right. was incredibly life-giving. And, you know, maybe someday we can have a discussion about why I think it's okay for my son to be baptized. We can go, I mean, that's a whole theological discussion mm -hmm. that doesn't necessarily need to be brought up here, but I'm bringing up this idea because that was a gift to me that someone could let could not be so focused in on this particular interpretation yeah. mm -hmm. acknowledge yes. that there are other mm. interpretations that mm. demonstrate that my son with all his limitations but with also all his gift can sit there and say that he loves jesus and he wants to tell people he loves jesus and that that's right and that there is room for him to be part of this community. Mayor, you had talked about people coming to this to this boy's bar mitzvah because mm -hmm. they knew him and they saw him everywhere. And that that gift in a very different way was something offered to us where many churches mm -hmm. would just say, no, that's and so I think having those these different kind of harmonies that we've talked about that as I think Frank described it, and especially even around baptism, I think is a gift and something, you know, we have to major on the majors, but, you know, maybe we need to hold some things loosely and make, make space for people where they are. Yeah. Yeah. Let scripture, let Torah be a song with many harmony mm -hmm. where, you know, we can kind of all sing scripture and hear it together. I will um, just just share a quick story. Uh, in my experience, reading scripture out loud, not not even singing or um, reading as a poem, just reading out loud is very uncommon. Mm -hmm. And we oh are, wow, it's almost yeah. obligatory by us. Yes, yes. Um, oh, so we so are valuable. It is so valuable. We are studying Isaiah right now in Bible study, and just one night I read them. Um, I believe it's Isaiah 6, where we actually meet the prophet Isaiah. And he, um, it's the, the song of the vineyard, actually, that I might be getting it mixed up. But anyway, as I'm reading it afterwards, I said, now tell me about that experience for you. And one gal in particular said, 
the the inflection of your you know i could actually put mm. myself in the you know it, it came to life if you will rather than and honestly you know sometimes maybe you're not the best reader and so you'll you'll read through fast and it gets kind of boring because you have no idea what these big words are you know mm -hmm. um so yes i agree i think um i i have tried much more to read scripture out loud to read whole passages also helps um again speaking to the idea of torah as a whole rather than um mm. you know four or five verses or chapters at a time um you know to sit down and read jonah from beginning to end is going to be a wholly different experience than just reading those little sections or um you know the little part where he's inside the big fish <laughs> um so yeah i Jonah's very doable. It's very short. Yes, that's Four why chapters. I picked it. Haggai, we can use Haggai Ruth. too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so maybe start small, but um, a good discipline, though, to, to develop. Mm. And I think that, you know, so maybe that's what each of us thinks. I mean, Mary, you're already doing it, but maybe for the rest of us, maybe that's what we do this week and encourage our listeners to do. Let's try reading some scripture out loud. Let's read an extended section out loud. I mean, if, if that feels intimidating, maybe you start with just read Deuteronomy 32 and Mayor mentioned some of the different ways that it has been interpreted as past or as future. Um, trying to hold some of those things, maybe read them aloud, maybe listen to it. Listen to somebody else read it. In Hebrew. Super well, mind-blowing. Well, yeah, yeah that's it's wonderful, <laughs> but you're not going to get a lot of content if you don't know Hebrew. So maybe listen no, to but you, you hear it English. and feel it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yes. you do. Yeah. yeah. So maybe that's something we have you tape separately for us, Mayor. Maybe you read us some scripture <laughs> in Hebrew, and then, then we have somebody read it in English or something. I'm, I don't I'm know. happy to do it. There are also there, there are many very good recordings on, on YouTube. Mm -hmm. um, by real uh, masters. And uh, I'll put some in the show notes so oh, people can hear it. A few different styles too of uh, the same passages. So you can hear, you know, what does it sound like if it's like this or like that? Yeah. Um, because really it's, it's beautiful. This is like one of the areas where I would really geek out and I'm holding myself back here. Um, <laughs> well, I guess, well, you're in company of geeks. Well, I, I hear we're, I hear we're wrapping up and I see yeah. our time running off. Um, I want to take um a maybe a, a weird turn from the idea of song because picking up on the thread that you started earlier jen when you were talking about song in terms of as a pneumatic mnemonic mm -hmm. right and we we all know um how much easier it is to memorize all the books of the bible if you have a nice song uh <laughs> to sing them to yes. or um you know you're memorizing uh a verse from uh proverbs and once you can find the rhythm to that verse mm -hmm. it's much easier to memorize it than if it's just words that you're saying um, i had to memorize the shema in hebrew one oh, actions yeah. and actions i didn't really know what too. i was saying i was just but i could get the rhythm and the sound and i yes yeah actions that that's really that that's actually part of how we do it mm, um, huge. yeah uh, so like when I'm wearing tefillin, right? You know, when I talk about on your arm, I'm kissing my tefillin on my arm. I'm kissing my um, I watched a guy once, uh, a friend of mine, um, you know, go over to the doorpost in order to kiss the mezuzah when he yeah. got to that part. Um, so um, I actually, I turn, I live in Jerusalem and I turn south toward Hebron when I'm saying the first verse of Shema. Shema Israel, Hashem Elokeinu Echad. Um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, is one. Why would I do that? Because 
we have a tradition that this verse was spoken by the children of Yaakov, the children of Jacob, to Jacob on his deathbed, that that he was um, in a prophetic state and wanted to reveal to them something, and then he was blocked from revealing to them the thing that he wanted, the, the end of days. He was blocked revealing that to them. And, and he became very nervous. It's like, maybe there's a problem with my kids. Maybe, maybe there's a, they aren't worthy to hear this. And they reassured him by saying, you know, listen, Israel, his alternate name, right? Listen, Israel, right? Oh. The Hashem oh. is our God. Hashem is one. And, and so when we say that verse, we aren't saying that, we aren't declaring that to God. We're speaking to our great-great-great-great-grandfather. We're linking ourselves back to that. So I turn to his grave, which is, you can see where I'm pointing now, south of where I am, and that's the direction that I say a Shaman. That's not a normative thing, but, but knowing that that's what the verse means, that that's what the context is, how can I not turn toward Jacob? Because that's where he's buried. It's right over there. Now, Mayor, would you say that tradition has it, that that was a prayer um, Jacob heard, I believe it said, um, it, is that in the Mishnah? Is that in a Midrash? Is that, I mean, tying it to our conversation today, where where would one find? That kind of teaching is something that you could expect to find somewhere in the Talmud or in the Midrash. Every now and then, the Mishnah will bring a verse and it will give you a specific interpretation or even a debate about that verse. That is the exception and not the rule because the Mishnah is designed to be extremely information dense. And if it's referring to a verse, you are supposed to know what the verse is. But what I wanted to do to talk about the, the function of song and memory is to point out that, that I don't think that that's just about song being useful. I think it's about the nature of reality, that there's a reason why song would make something more memorable. Like I spent a lot of time during neuro, neuro, doing neuroscience. So you know, I, I can, you know, start to talk through the, the, the brain science uh, way of thinking about this, about why music would be helpful in remembering things and blah, 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 blah. But I'm talking about something more fundamental than, uh, than how our brain happens to work. Right? The fact that our musical structures, so much of it is based around the overtone system, around the physical reality of how not just uh, our instruments work or our voices work, but how waves work is a shocking thing. Right? When you hear music, you're hearing the basic mathematics of the universe. It's, it's an experience of the structure of reality, which is so deep. And, and it's astonishing that our brains are tuned into that and, that and that our brains are able to make use of that, that song should make things more memorable. Mm. It's, it's a beautiful thing when, when you look at it from that perspective. And then to see the, the song of the Torah as not just a mnemonic device, not just a part of a tradition or a way of making something pretty and beautiful. And yes, it does all that. But but this is these are the echoes of creation coming through the word of God. Wow. Which if you and then tying that quickly into say the New Testament, if that is how we are to understand this, you know, Paul says all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so the servant of God may be 
thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's 2 Timothy 3.16. And while the focus there is on equipping, it would make, and maybe we should pause and say the New Testament didn't exist at the point that he wrote this. And if parts of it did exist, they weren't yet scripture. So there's very much a sense in which he is referring to the Hebrew scriptures, what we might call the Old Testament or the First Testament. But if you're getting at this idea that this is fundamentally tied to creation, that would make Mm -hmm. sense why Paul, even though he is now viewing things through a Christological lens and how the advent of Christ changes things, it's still essential, it's still important, it still matters and has an effect on how we live out our lives. Because yeah, song, song fact, isn't just about religion. Right. Song, song is about reality. Right. And so yeah. this is tying because if this is getting back into the truth, into reality and tying this to reality, then it is something that remains and it continues and it is still more than just slightly relevant. Amen. Okay. Tracy, well, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, yes, absolutely. It's been, it was... it's been a real treat. And I so. thank you. Thank you for the conversations that you have. I, I think I, I told Mayor um, just in a private message, but Frank, um, what, what you can add on the language mm-hmm. side. And um, Jen, what you, it's a good mix. You guys have a good thing going. So I'm, I'm very excited to share it with my readers, to share it um, you know, with the people I interact with on Twitter as well. So yeah, hats off to you. Thanks for including me. Thank you. And we're looking forward uh, next time around, we will be having Laura Robinson as a guest. She is one of the co-hosts of the New Testament Review. She is a PE candidate in New Testament at Duke. If and you haven't I've, checked that out on YouTube, please check that out. Yeah, and she has an episode on there where she talks about Jesus and the two donkeys in Matthew. Well, we're going to tackle that from the Old Testament side of things or from the Hebrew script. I commented on that video. She made me so nervous, and then she nailed it so hard. Oh, that's <laughs> I'm awesome. so. I'm so impressed with her videos. <laughs> you were like, oh no, what do we have happening? I'm like, oh no, I can't believe she's doing that. And then she came back and like, oh wow, it was great. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you enjoyed the video. And um, for those of you who might be looking forward, catch the video and then we're going to have her here and uh, ask some questions. So Tracy, thank you for coming. Yes. Thank you. Uh, and Such a uh, treat. All right. Thank you all. Thank you everybody for listening. Uh, you can check us out uh, on Twitter. We all have accounts there. You can get us on our website. That's twochristiansandajew.com. You can uh, get this podcast on most platforms where you would listen to podcasts. We're also on Patreon if you want to support the show. And uh, if you are listening to this without having seen the show notes, uh, we put a lot of effort into those. Um, I mean, this is only the second episode, but we have been putting a lot of effort into it so far. So um, do check it out. There's a lot of good stuff there. There will be uh, all sorts of amazing links to uh, to songs and chanting, which I think you might really enjoy. And um, be well and be blessed. Thank you very much. Thank you. Take care. <laughs>